Have you ever been intrigued by food and its connection to fashion? Why do we dress our salad or dress the table? Why do we dress up to go to an expensive restaurant? We explore these questions and more today. It's on tip of the tongue. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Adam Getze and Vicki Karaminas. Adam is an artist and writer in Sydney College of the Arts in Australia, and Vicki is a professor of fashion at Massey University in New Zealand. They are co-authors of Gastro Fashion, From Haute Cuisine to Haute Couture. Adam, Vicky, welcome to Tip of the Tongue. Thank you, Liz. Wonderful to be here. Hello. So I am really curious to know whether you started on this road to writing this book because you kept thinking about all of the early people and them adorning themselves with seed necklaces and bones and things? Or did you kind of work backwards from today and say, how did we get to where we are today and decide to write this? Did I start on this one? Oh, Adam, you want to go ahead or should I? (laughs) But both of us can talk a leg off a chair, so you'll have to, you, you can adjudicate this. Um, <laughs> we were writing a book called, actually, even though, uh, as we were discussing earlier, we do have come from very foodie kind of backgrounds and ways, and we, we cooks and we love, love all those things and family and so on. So we were writing a book called Fashion Installation, Body, Space and Performance. And in their research of writing the book, we noticed that there was a lot of couture houses that actually have restaurants and coffee shops, like Prada, for example, has a pasticeria. And, you know, Ralph Lauren. um, So we looked at it and we realised that the reason why they do have food outlets was to bring in customers. And from that point, we started thinking, I live on a farm and I grow my own food, including vegetables and meat, and I go hunting and I'm very much into paddock to plate and circular economy and so forth. And we started talking with Adam and we said, you know what, in a conversation, I've got a brilliant idea. And this idea was based on if you, you know, that I have a sociology background, I said, you know, Food and fashion have a lot in common. The language of food and fashion and the body. So it's just kind of what I call the holy alliance. It's the three of them, fashion, food, and the body come together Mm -hmm. in the same language, in manners, table manners, in appearance. And it goes all the way back to the Middle Ages with gluttony and who could eat what, and then that kind of ordained colours and clothing and so forth. So with all our work, with the books that we've written together as, you know, collaborators for a very long time, for nearly 20 years now, 
we get our ideas, you know, from the books that we write lead on to other books. So how long were you working on it? How long did you do this before you said, okay, this needs to, this needs to be written or did it kind of evolve by itself? I'm kind of curious. Um, what we did was we said, okay, let's pitch it to our editor. And we said, we've got this idea. And she said, I love it. Can you put together a proposal? Mm-hmm. So we put together a proposal. We sent it to Bloomsbury. It went off to blind reviewers, to three reviewers all over the world, rest of world, US and UK, and then came back uh, with positive reviews and we went ahead. We wrote it in a year. Oh, that's really quick. Uh, yes. Did you, hmm, I don't know how to say this. Did you really like research it first and then write it? Or did you write it and then find the way to support right. your ideas? <laughs> well, my undergraduate and my PhD was about the body and gender studies and being a foodie. And cooking, um, you know, coming from an immigrant family, a Greek immigrant family in Australia, food kind of brought us together. I had a lot of knowledge around food in sociology. So it started with the ideas that let's look at, you know, manners and let's look at, you know, Norbert Elias, for example, his work and manners. And then we mapped out the way a the book should be written. And then from there, we allocated sections on our expertise to each other and then the way we work is we allocate sections we write a bit of the book then we pass it on it goes backwards and forwards Mm -hmm. and so we research we had a body of knowledge prior to writing the book and then we researched as we went along we both do come from food backgrounds in in our respective ways and Roy's been involved as cooks and as uh, sharers of, of food we were writing a book called Fashion Installation at the time, and Vicky was engaged in a point in writing about haute couture and large fashion boutiques that had integrated into them restaurants, not just as kind of quick or ancillary add-ons of like a small cafe, but really made it a feature of the boutique as an important selling point. And so we discussed that idea. She was working on that at the time. She said, well, what are we going to call this? And from that germinated portmanteau uh, neologism. And then once we finished that book, uh, it was also at Vicky's prodding to say, well, look, hey, why don't we just do a do a whole study on it? So I ran with it and began doing it. And then we filled in all the gaps from, from there on. And uh, so you can sort of see with this work, there's there are many different kinds of part, moving parts and all of this. And it does seem to come from different angles. I think that's one of the great uh, strong points of having a collaborative team. So what kinds of things do you think that you found that you didn't expect to find when you started to see this synthesis of ideas where food and fashion were kind of going in the same direction? Well, with the background in sociology, I knew that there was a relationship between the body, food, and dress. And I think what was new was a greater exploration in the field of manners and also in the field 
predominantly of fashion and how fashion, especially in the last five years or so, has picked up working even on the catwalk we see this kind of relationship that fashion has to food in terms of marketing and consumption um but you know i think the whole book for us was extending our knowledge and we learned so much from writing it so one of the things that i found really fascinating is all of the examples that you give and i'd really like to talk about some of those examples How many of them did you just know because you lived through the time, as well as ones that you discovered as you began to do your research? For example, I could imagine that you know about Nigella Lawson simply because she was there and we all lived through that. But you'd also talked about some earlier examples of things that I can't imagine that you actually knew of through your own experience, things that were, say, pre-Julia Child and those earlier things that were Renaissance and and those things? Well, my background, uh, Vicky's um, from a studies in sociology background, and my doctoral studies was actually in Marcel Proust. So, funnily enough, many moons ago, my my father gifted me a book called Proust and Food, one of those coffee table books, which is still a delight to leaf through, but it's still... And I actually pulled it out and I thought, oh, there's a reason I didn't put it away. Um, So so all that um, Escoffier stuff, there was a a wonderful book that actually came out at the time when uh, we were writing it um, just a few years before, and I think it was reviewed in books as well, on um, Riggs and Escoffier. So... Um, you know, that that was timely. And uh, the other earlier stuff, um, you're right, I mean, right back to the Renaissance, that did uh, involve a little bit of granular research. It's not the sort of thing that you would uh, on your uh, Sunday afternoon sort of Google browse. <laughs> and so what was the most interesting thing to you from the Renaissance? Um, what I sort of thought, what was, I think for me was really interesting is that I knew about the courtly life. I knew about Charles V and that birth of courtly life and how that that uh, was arrayed with all, all different sorts of things to do with clothing, food, food and manners were all part of that, that complex of that burgeoning idea of spectacle. But what I thought was most fascinating is really the idea of gastronomy as, as we've come to value and cherish it. It's actually migrated from Italy to France and then... It's a really interesting, you know, that romanticism as a concept was birthed in Germany and then it was kind of developed in the end of the 18th century and developed well in France again. But so it's it's that that flourishing, that, that radical transition that occurred to hers in the 1500s up really until the 1600s with the uh, Louis the 13th and 14th that I've found a real eye opener. And um, Vicky, do you have any ideas uh, to contribute to that? What was the most think, interesting thing to you? I think the most interesting for me was the contemporary work around fashion and food, really, and extending that knowledge because my work is on contemporary fashion more so. And Adam always writes the kind of historical narrative when it comes to our books, the same with libertine fashion. So for me, it's always really refreshing 
Uh, and food, of course, I come into food as a personal um, in our in you know in life. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think it's the way that designers have picked up in their designs, you know, food and place it on the catwalk. That's really interesting, and it says something about how food brings people together, young people when they go into stores. Um, it's the food. It's like it reminded me in the nineties, um, the where people, you know, when we were younger, people would say, "Oh, you know, who couldn't afford um, Giorgio Armani in the eighties would say, you know, I'm wearing Armani, and it was the lipstick. So it was an access into, you know, couture. Yes, which, um, you know, is the same with restaurants, and you know, you would meet your friends at Patisseria, you know, uh, Prada, and um, have a cup of coffee and. You know, it's about, it's interesting because that's where you have food and wearing it and eating it and the way you appear in restaurants. The appearance is really important. So I think that for me um, gauge my interest and passion um, throughout the book, throughout writing the book. I think I think a key point here, Liz, is the word participation. So when mm. in, in the of fashion is people think of it um, simply as a material thing, but fashion is about recognition and you're also participating in well in, in wealth or participating in a particular language of of a, of a piece of item of clothing that someone else has worn that you want to then participate in that culture and of course food i don't have to tell you or your audience is all about or gastronomy is all about participating in a particular it's not just it's not the act of eating it's about participating so um we really were interested not only in this idea of the body and fashion and, and, and the introduction, if you remember, is inside and out. Food goes inside and mm-hmm. both is inside. But we were also really interested um, as, as the way in which people participate in sharing consumption, and, but also in the transaction of sign. So really what's mm. really interesting about gastronomy is uh, you know, it, 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 it's not just food. It's a series of values. It's a series of traditions that are sort of co, co-recognised amongst a group. So do you think that it also applies, though, to things that are not just um, haute cuisine and haute couture, but also the everyday uh, fast foodness of things where you have to be wearing jeans and go in with a into wearing having a, a truck that you drive as you go through the drive through and there's a certain look that you're mm. going to have because you you eat this kind of food not all of it is oat cuisine and oat couture but it's still the same concept this is what i wear because i eat this kind of food or i eat this kind of food because this is what i wear and it's it's the same the same concept. It's just not perhaps the same degree of artistry. Mm, totally agree with you, Liz. I mean, fashion is about identity. We wake up in the morning and we choose consciously or subconsciously what to wear. So we would wake up, for example, and say, what jeans am I going to wear? The blue jeans, the blue jeans, or the blue jeans, because mm-hmm. there are shades of blue mm-hmm. or the black jeans. And, you know, whether you wear black jeans or blue jeans, um, they have a certain code or a message, um, you know, and the type of jeans, whether they're faded jeans or they're not faded jeans. So when we dress, we actually, and I kind of see it as a confessional, 
It's a way that we tell the world who we are and who we are not. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's very important. And it's kind of fashion studies 101, we'll call it, where fashion and dress and, um, you know, is about identity and sexuality. And interestingly, when you if we throw sex in, the language of um, sex is also the language of food and the language of fashion because mm-hmm. um, they're all bound to the body. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's all about the body. They come together on the body, in the body, about the body. Um, and what's really interesting, I mean, if we look at um, the kind of marketing and rebranding of Cool Britannia of um, England, you know, in the 90s was very much couched along artists as well as, um, you know, Nigella Lawson and uh, Jamie Oliver were very much part of that Cool Britannia campaign, you know, of taking Britain out of this kind of, you know, boring cuisine that was kind of boiled or poached to, you know, everybody can cook and everybody can be glamorous. And if we recall Nigella's, you know, it was even, um, or, they were, or Nigella was marketed as a kind of, you know, goddess Aphrodite mm-hmm. uh, of sex and food and fashion with her twin sets. And as for Jamie Oliver, he was marketed as a new lad. The new lad was a kind of mediated identity that was circulating at the time in the UK and it influenced Australia and abroad where, you know, he kind of, the new lad was laddish. He hung around with his mates. He went to the pub. He drank a lot. He went to football. Women were kind of okay. But, you know, and Jamie Oliver was kind of a new lad and he appealed to young men to get in the kitchen, start cooking and start hanging out with your mates. It's all kind of bromance brewing, I should say. Mm -hmm. Um, so fashion in that way is also very much like food about branding an identity for a country Um, similarly with France you know um, and yeah which is really interesting for me so do you think I mean this is a little bit off the topic but you're talking about Jamie Oliver and Jamie Oliver didn't have quite the same welcome in the U S as he did in other places Mm. and was kind of seen as acting as though he was better than the people, for example, in West Virginia, that he was trying to assist and was really rejected quite summarily. Do you think that the acceptance that he had in other places is something that he took with him in his brain that he thought it would just carry over? Or do you think that somehow there was just a misrepresentation of what he was trying to do and a misunderstanding of how to present it to the people he was trying to help? I'm going to say something that may be unpopular to some of your listeners, and this is getting a little bit left of field, but it's answering your, your question. One of the things as an Australian who is patron, we are patronised continually by um, English, not necessarily British, but English, historically, but often on a day-to-day basis, professionally. What I find incredibly refreshing when I go to the United States is that uh, English people do not carry on the same way because you're the new empire. And particularly, so the thing is, I think it has to do with a deep-seated cultural uh, perception. And he did come in in a sort of ramrod style that he knew it all. And simply that, particularly in terms of uh, English language and culture, that simply does not wear unless it's actually integrated 
within institutional systems, namely in, in terms of film and so on. But I think it, it really has to do with a cultural thing. Though I think his projection, speaking as Australian, was enormously refreshing. Yes, I have to agree with Adam. In Australia, Jamie Oliver was actually seen as, by most people, as arrogant. And yes, I think there was a cultural miss, a miss in terms of culture. Um, what he was marketed at as the new lad, and he appealed to the new lad, which was, you know, a mediated masculinity, as I mentioned, in the UK. I don't think there was a new lad in the US as a form of masculine identity. No. In Australia, there was, but not to the a degree, not to such a degree. And the reason being, and speaking for Australia, is that although Australia was colonised by Britain, it, Australia imported a lot of its popular culture from the US, and that was television and Laverne and Shirley and all the movies. So Australia is more so aligned to the US popular culture than the UK. Whereas in New Zealand, the European people are more aligned to the British. Mm. So there's a, there was, I think there is definitely, as I agree with Adam, a miss, a cultural miss that happened because it was not a kind of identity that was supported or embedded within the US culture in, in America or Australia or various other countries. Yeah, it, it is. I think it's really an interesting thing that you take on that identity. Um, and of course, in his case, it was connected to food. So it mm. was it was an interesting miss. Mm. But speaking of another example from, from your book, can we talk a little bit about the meat dress of Lady Gaga? Because I think that was a very specific thing, unlike the Jamie Oliver thing, which was much more involving personality and other things that are not really what we were talking about. Well, we've got a few answers. We've got a few answers for that, and we'll do a few unashamed uh, promotional comments because okay. it does, the meat comes actually appears in now really the first thing that Vicky and I did together which is fashion and archaeology, and we talked about that in our introduction. Mm -hmm. And we are surprised that in a book uh, we've written in defence of the importance of, of, of many aspects, not all, of popular culture in terms of its critical cultural value, cargo aesthetics, that say well, there are a lot of these thing like, things, even like, well, gastronomy or fashion, certain aspects of it, not all of it, are doing having a critical value that, that, uh, that art isn't normally reserved for artists in job. And so we've, we've talked about the meat dress and Lady Gaga on several occasions through our work. And that is taken from very, very important second wave feminist work by Jan Sturbach from uh, a Canadian feminist artist. Um, and it has a very, very complex name, which I always forget. And I, I, I encourage your S-T-E-R-B-A-K and then your listeners can, can Google that. And there's a picture of her in a, in a meat dress. And of course, that's a very classic, it's considered one of the classic works of second wave feminism in contemporary art brought more broadly because it's sort of early contemporary art to then periodize it. Um, but of course, it's, it's talking about um, how women are treated as objects, women are treated as flesh, as, as being, and so on. Um, what's very funny about that is that we wanted an image um, for our book, but in our 211 uh, fashion and art and 
uh, we traditionally have got very eminent artists who have um, generously given their images free. Anyone from Cindy Sherman to to, to many others of um, Shirin Nejat and, and so on. Um, and of course, we're sort of asking also on that tradition free. We got a very very peevish response, uh, mainly because it seems that this is the artwork that really has overshadowed all her other artworks, and these are the it's like a one hit wonder in, in a hit parade. In any case, the interesting thing about the Lady Gaga work is it, it is a confrontation, what we call critical fashion, that is to say, not all fashion, not your, the T-shirt that I'm wearing today, um, but certain events or certain strategies and configuration fashion that uh, meet and abut or even collide or challenge contemporary art. And you, we could argue, we argue, we, we maintain, and this is contentious at the point, that in fact, Lady Gaga did Dimitri's dress better than Yana uh, Sturmer. And of course, there is a, what's interesting as well is that in, as, uh, in contemporary art, there's this concept called appropriation, uh, which, as you know, uh, which I like to remind my, my um, Anglophone or non-US um, audiences that appropriation, of course, is in US English, a euphemism for stealing. Uh, but in fashion, they don't have appropriation per se. It's it's actually made very made very light. It's called inspiration, and that's somehow okay. So in fact, within the language of fashion, and then art slash fashion, she appropriated, but then she was just inspired. So the question to to, to level at you and and your audience is: Did Lady Gaga do the Mitras better? We think so. And do you think that without an explanation, people understood or could understand what the meat dress represented? You're absolutely right. There was no explanation, but that she wanted, um, you know, to draw attention to, to a worthy cause. Mm -hmm. And what better way to do it than shock people, mm -hmm. especially, you know, Peter and um, people, you know, against animal, um, you know, brutality, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and she did shock a lot of people. There was a lot of comments against the fact that she wore, you know, slabs of flesh, so to speak, um, to the event. Um, but it was about drawing attention to the fact that gays and lesbians couldn't serve openly in the US military. Mm -hmm. um, and it was successful as a campaign. I think. I think the other question is, uh, Liz, you talk about, you know, the reference there. And that, in a sense, also hits at the nub of the, the issue, the problem that is um, that um, it's precisely that uh, until then, uh, most people hadn't heard it except for those people versed in art and contemporary art and relatively specialist or percentile hadn't known about that work. So I don't want to use the A word, you know, sensible because I think a fairly vexed concept has two sides to it. But, you know, it opened the work out to a broader audience. And as Vicky said, it, 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 it pushed the con critical contours of it well outside of feminism into, you know, LGBTQI activism and in terms of environmentalism to do with, with um, genetic engineering and so on. So, again... Uh, this, 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 it, it also tends to expose the problem of originality because um, um, artworks are re, re being redone 
we, we call it, re, uh, there are remakes in films, there are reboots um, in many different things. And if it's done well, and it certainly has made an incredible impact, um, it needs to be taken seriously. It, it also made me think about the difference between wearing a meat dress and wearing a bread dress and mm. what you can take away from those two different things because they're often are dresses made of bread. I mean, you can find those everywhere, whereas not necessarily quite as many meat dresses. And uh, just the, the audacity to me of wearing a meat dress when a bread dress is something that seems much more domestic and seems more appropriate to be a dress in that way of thinking. I just, I just love that about it, that it was just like, look at what I'm doing. <laughs> and uh, I, it was amazing. I, I think, you know, that, I mean, let, let's just drill back to the obvious here. You know, it's about blood and it's about, it's about you know, flesh, blood and so on. Um, but, you know, it's, it's that, it's, it's that incredible viscerality of it um, that, and, and that, that brings it into a, a, a completely different domain. And uh, and that that it's also would be probably very unpleasant to wear. So <laughs> so 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 it but it but it does also bring into it I think a very some very very interesting uh, or it does prompt a lot of very interesting questions because uh, you talk about the bread and domesticity and and that just sort of led me to think well the 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 clothing not necessarily the fashion a lot of high end fashion has the kind of What's called, I think, was one commentator called it the the luxury option of actually being sustainable. But fashion is one of the great environmental scourges, and it is actually causes a lot of uh, you know blood, sweat, tears for those people we exploit. So it does open out yet another uh, area that that your your idea of the bread sort of prompted prompted uh, me to think about. Um, as we also noted in gastro fashion, bread has been used by designers in their collections. Notably, uh, Jean-Paul Gaultier had an exhibition where he made all his, um, uh, you know, his successful designs he made into um, bread. And I think it's all about, you know, let them eat cake, let them eat bread. It's a relationship with, between bread has been used by many by photographers and designers to kind of link the body and anorexia and not having enough uh, food. Mm -hmm. And so we looked at um, one of the chapters in the book, looks at um, the modelling industry and um, how um, Gaultier placed a, you know, a plus model earlier in the 90s on the catwalk in Spain as an example of his frustration, and it was a political gesture um, of how fashion deems a certain body type as ideal. And that was the kind of early days, I think, of that's, I mean, fashion is very much a, a barometer of social change. Many people still believe that fashion kind of falls into the domain of the frivolous and the domain of the feminine, but it is, it always has been political. Um, by placing a plus model on the stage in the early 90s, Gautier was making a comment about women's bodies and the fact that models um, that were a size eight um, 
that were fainting on the catwalk. They were just, you know, ideals that were extreme. And um, so this chapter kind of looks at that. But food, um, I think that, um, you know, the modelling industry now has changed, um, it's, has changed quite a lot um, in terms of what is considered um, ideal because of, you know, the recent um, trans-liberation uh, movement, the recent push towards accepting bodies, you know, that are not a size 8 or 10 as ideals, but bodies that are diverse. Mm -hmm. And this has come about through the gender non, you know, trans-liberation and gender non-conforming. So, but, you know, fashion is political in that we remember, and it's very powerful because it's it's a visual indicator fashion design of what's happening in culture. Fashion designers are like sponges. They look at the world, they say, okay, this is, you know, I'm going to have a collection that is about, you know, September the 11th, which is also interestingly after September the 11th, a lot of designs on the catwalk were military. Mm -hmm. So fashion is political in a lot of ways, not just subcultural style, but couture, um, you know, and food, um, at the moment, especially if we look at COVID and people lining up in supermarkets, people really changed their ideas about how they wanted to live. And we see, as Adam mentioned, food and sustainability and fashion being a great kind of, you know, polluter of our environment, along with technology, that fashion, in a sense, has aligned and food has aligned together in our times you know, to talk about being also ethically responsible. Yes, I think it's a very complicated issue, especially when you think about, for example, all of the hunger that there is in this world Mm. and who is hungry and who isn't and why are these people hungry, whether it's because food has been politicized or weaponized so that people are being starved as a tool of war or just because they are the the victims of where they live of some kind of drought it's really uh very complicated just as it as um a tool and as a something that is politicized even aside from the suffering Mm -hmm. things that people actually experience because of it and to me that always gets to be the scary part of sociology or anthropology is we only talk about it as, oh, oh, there was a drought or there was a famine and we don't get to necessarily see the hungry people because we talk about it at that distance. I think there is a, yeah, there's a real deficit of gratitude in our particular land plenty. And uh, we can think about just, for example, with regard to those relationships between politics, identity, and food. Uh, I don't know if you remember, there was a kind of equivalent of a gif or a meme. I, I remember maybe even 10 years ago where um, Julia Roberts was spotted in a cafe eating eating pasta. And it, was, it sort of went quasi-viral. Oh my God, here she is eating carbs. And, and no one really stopped to really think just actually how vulgar that kind of astonishment is in terms of a broad, the broader picture that you were uh, painting. Um, and I think that those, those elements 
are, are incredibly disappointing. And and as as you well know from I'm sure many of your other podcasts is that there is a lot of manipulation and misdirection with regard to food. Um, the whole kind of chicanery about you know organic, whole thing about fat. There are many different kinds of fats. It's really sugars that are the problem, right. uh, you know. And and then uh, the, the you know something can be fat free, but it can also be have so many processed foods in it that you know it, it's a it's a you know you can to count down to cancer. And I think the thing is that these manipulations um, in uh, the lands of plenty, in particular for those people who have the choice. Um, and I think that's where the dark side comes into it. When we talk about recently, as I just quoted before, I was kind of captivated in the trigonometry podcast about one writer recently came on. He talked about luxury beliefs. We have the luxury of actually making, having certain opinions within our, our respective elites and our countries. We have these luxury foods and these luxury clothes. You have this, this option then to, to, to actually wear these kinds of foods, clothes and have these kinds of foods. And or you, you don't have to go into, um, you know, the, to Afghanistan and so, so on. You can still just walk into places like Poland. And if you have a pair of jeans with the Namani logo on it, at the, you know, on your back pocket, you're, you're going to get some looks because people in Poland, in Hungary, in Slovakia, they cannot afford um, these simple, those, those kinds of things unless they're rip-offs. Similarly, with, with food, I mean, you could also talk to say that there are certain foods which are kind of rip offs as well. But they, this idea of having a, you know, a Wagyu steak and so on, or the Angus beef burger and so on, these are all very, very luxury things. And uh, there seems to be a real deficit of gratitude, I think, in our, in, in our in, in where you and I are comfortable from, in our elite and comfortable cultures. When we also talk about diets well diets have become fashionable and there are fashionable diets so for example <laughs> you know there's the keto diet or the paleo diet or the paleo diet it would have been about 10 years ago that it was very fashionable mm -hmm. so diet fads come and go like trends like fashion trends right that's that's really true well, I want to thank both of you for, first of all, writing this book, because I think it really brings to light all sorts of important things about our lives. And thanks for giving me the time for this conversation, because I think it was fascinating. Thanks very much. Don't thank forget you, Liz. It's wonderful. Wonderful to be here and having a chat with you. And don't forget to tell your listeners, as you told us, that you enjoyed it because it was a, a, an easy, fun read. It's not, uh, it's an, it's another, there's another unashamed plug, but thank we so, so, so privileged and uh, very grateful for your time and attention. Thanks so much, Liz. Well, I want to remind everybody that the name of the book is Gastro Fashion, and it is definitely worth reading. And yes, Adam, it is very readable <laughs> and uh, people should know that it, it is not a slog. It's really a readable book. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye, Liz. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue, part of the Nitty Grits Network of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. Learn more and subscribe to this and other podcasts at southernfood.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Find us on Facebook on Nitty Grits Podcasts. I'm Liz Williams. 
Thanks for listening.